0: Are you tired of fighting with an unreliable bank that doesn't care about you or your small business clients? Relay is a no-fee online banking platform built for you and your small business clients. Relay has built accountant-friendly authentication, collaboration, automation, and integration into a small business bank account. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Relay, later in the episode.
1: I love this. If I'm understanding correctly, you're saying, figure out how to open up what the IRS knows, yep. open up their database to outside you know, authorized people like CPAs and software companies supporting them, and then we can go in and we can fix it. I mean, we can get the data we need to file the, whatever we need to resolve these issues rather than having to have this one, this like wall between us and the information.
0: Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio... This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast.
1: Today is January 30th, 2022. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. And joining us today is Jason Statz, the YouTuber of the CPA profession, leading us into the great world of video. And we're recording on video today because of you, Jason, you have inspired us. So thank you so much for being here. Good. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I am so excited talking to you about uh, all sorts of things going on this week: tax season, cryptocurrency. Uh, what else do we got, David? You started a little a Twitter war. Or well, well, Jason said that storm. I chose
0: anger based on my tweet, and it kind of <laughs> you, got ch- very you chose violence. Opinionated yeah. Yeah. about that that, that tweet. Um, we could, we'll, I want to talk about your tweet. We'll talk about that. Um, the IRS, you know, they're updates, you know, they're looking for lawyers, thinking about looking to alternatives to the ID me. We can follow up on some of that, those stories. That's right.
1: Um, Expensify launched a corporate card for CPAs. I tried to sign up for it. I can't wait to tell you guys about how that went. I, uh, I've been talking about the metaverse a lot and because we're on video, I can show you. I actually did it, David. You did buy an Here's Oculus. my, here's my yes. Oculus. Oh yeah. <laughs>
2: Next time we do this, we're
1: all going to be goggled out of our minds, right? So for those listening on the on the podcast, not watching the video, this is my Oculus Quest 2. It's still in the box. It's the the Facebook uh, VR headset. So yeah, we have to do a metaverse edition.
0: So I, I hate to do this because you know we have the video professional with us and we're using video for the first time to do the podcast. But Jason, you are blurry as hell. <laughs> like Oh,
1: that's because of our video platform here. We're using Zencaster
0: to record. Oh, but you look
1: perfect, Blake. You're Oh, Perfectly well, crisp. I
0: have—I
1: don't know what you guys have. I have fiber. Am my board as well? <laughs> you look uh, at me. I can see look- my camera live feed, and it
2: looks fine through my end. So it's got to be the platform, I
1: think. All right. Well, so the way this platform works is it records the video locally to the computer. The stream is just for us, and then it uploads the high res files to the server.
2: I've got my and I'm gonna. I've got my own recording straight out of my camera. So worst case, I could shoot that to you.
0: All right, sweet, sweet. perfect. We're I just—I was getting kudos, like, "Look, this, like, we have the better video." <laughs> Figure figure your crap out, Jason. It's actually going downhill. It's actually getting worse. So, this is great. Oh, geez. So, let's start with this tweet. David, please read your tweet. What did you say? All right. Let me open up my tweet here. And read it in the voice in which you composed it, please. Uh, This is like one o'clock in the afternoon on January 26th. I tweeted, hashtag text Twitter, colon. You know that portal you are sending clients to answer, quote unquote, just 59 questions so you can do the return? It sure feels a lot a lot like the same experience when I just used TurboTax to do my taxes myself. And then I put a space and I said, what are you doing to differentiate? And what drove this is this year, I'm, I mean, I've, I've used a firm to do my business returns before. And the first time I used it, I used uh, from Halon Tax. I used Halon Tax and it just connects to your QBO file and just sucked the data. Like I barely had to do anything. It was actually a pretty slick experience. The problem is Halon kind of backed off on that because I was probably an exception. My QuickBooks were actually in order. <laughs> Most people aren't. So tools like that, it's really hard to do. But I'm actually going to use a firm for my... I'm, I'm getting more complicated. I don't have... What's the words H&R Block and TurboTax use now? Simple return. So I have a firm that's going to do my taxes and then my business return. But I've gotten two, two of these onboarding interviews now. And... Boy, they feel a lot like TurboTax as far as the questions. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, if I have to do all this gathering, get these W2s, scan the PDFs, upload them to somewhere else, I might as well just do them in TurboTax. And it's not about the value accounts are bringing. I'm just like my experience as a client. I'm like, this is crazy. Like the experience is identical between a firm and just using a self product. Some people said, I don't understand what accountants do, and that's possible. Some people yeah. said that it's about the value, or some people said, hey, you know, let people use TurboTax if they want to do that. Um, there's a lot of discussions about the value, and Jason's like, oh man, you chose violence today. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do it to pick a fight. I'm just like questioning, like, and then I was thinking, could you exploit this? Could you just put your tell your clients to start your return on TurboTax and then invite me in? So it's almost like it's, it's somewhere you're falling between the TurboTax live model where you're making a version of that yourself. I don't
2: know. I think it. so why I love this is it's one of those things where the tax professional hears it and they're going to get so upset, oh, but it's no. absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely the sort of question our clients ask. And we've had our clients bring that up several times. Why are you, why are you making me do all of this stuff when that's what I'm paying you to do? So several different angles there. The most obvious one is how you're going to differentiate. Don't go into business doing what TurboTax does. For reference, my firm will do about 1,100 1040s this year. And there's probably 40 of those that could be done on TurboTax. And we're very upfront about that. We don't want TurboTax tax returns. But for whatever reason, they're spooked. They don't like it. Or maybe there's something else, some other aspect to what we do for them throughout the year that that offers more value than just the tax reporting. So, from a differentiation standpoint, just don't do tax returns that could be done on TurboTax. And I don't think most tax professionals are. Now, the trouble is, all those questions that TurboTax asks you, we have to ask you all those same questions and more. Because you need the data, right? Because like, the the end I need of the day, data, yeah. You, yeah. And there's definitely bad ways to do that. We've all experienced really unintelligent forms, right? Like, so give me your business name every single year, year after year, David. What is your first name, last name, social? Nobody wants to do
0: that.
1: So that, that, that definitely reminds, bad me of, reminds me of, reminds me, like, the bad version is you send me the printed out organizer that has every single possible question, and it's like yeah. hundreds of things for me to fill out. Like, that's a terrible experience.
0: Or it people is. have taken that and I think they've turned it into like a type form or Google yeah. sheet thinking, oh, now, but that's the same thing you've just given <laughs> us, pen and paper. It's one
2: of those things where uh, we're to a degree, we're subject to the tool set that we have and it, it takes a little more effort to like build out that kind of conditional logic because every taxpayer situation is so different. So, it's dependent upon... The jurisdictions that you work in, that you live in, um, you know, those question sets are totally unique. And mm-hmm. so, obviously, the easy thing to do is take a boilerplate set of questions and just vomit all of that into, you know, it could be on paper, it could be something fancy like type form. The harder thing to do is to get down more into that conditional logic. But there's also an element of what is the client's preferred way of interfacing on this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, You know, throwing out the example of these are just unintelligent questions. The intelligent questions, you still need a way to gather them. Some people want to do that digitally. Some people don't. I sometimes worry if my function is to call you and ask you all those questions, does it squeeze out meaningful phone calls? And so that's where we're trying to make the best of both worlds is, is only sending people through intelligent questionnaires as best we can and then saving the the higher context
1: like one to one phone calls for the more valuable stuff and you just put a course up on my app earmark web forms for accountants and this was one of the learning takeaways for me was don't send people a 50 question form or a 100 question form if you're going to do type form mm-hmm. break it into smaller chunks yeah and then yeah. only send them what they need what you need to know if you can, yeah,
2: and uh, the you know the two tools we went through there, Airtable and Typeform, they both both let you build out conditional logic based on the responses. So very good example. Did you have an auto in your business this year? Well, that auto pro forma from last year, you ought to know based on last year. But if you didn't, you don't need to ask all these questions about your auto. Auto. If you did, then you do need to ask, uh, and that's actually not that hard to build these days. But you see even some of the, some of the really tech-enabled firms like High Rock, for example, when they do their client onboarding, they actually have completely separate forms that are chained together based on responses to those earlier forms. So, there are definitely intelligent ways to do it. So
0: that means I, I have more forms coming from High Rock. <laughs> that <yeah>.
2: <laughs> I think we all know that the, the standard technological bar for the tax preparer isn't particularly high, right? So, yes, there's there's a lot of bad versions of this out there. So,
0: a lot of this is scale, right? And I'm just at my own time. And that, that's what's convenient of something like TurboTax, because all my answers, like, what are my kids' names? What are their social security numbers? Like, I don't know this. I gotta go find it. So, the fact that it's just already in TurboTax, and I was kind of thinking how, remember, I think last week we talked about TaxSlayer is offering, like, a three-year tax product, $25 a year. Maybe that's where this makes the most sense. Like, hey, you're going to have to do this onboarding questionnaire, but... Because you've committed to your taxes for three years, next year, you, we're going to reuse the answers or we're going to have the data and you just have to clarify a couple of things. things because that's basically what, kind of what TurboTax does every year. You're just like, do you still have the same children? Yes. Check. I don't have to worry about the socials. I'm assuming it's correct still. It didn't change. Yeah. So it's like, obviously you need the information, but that's the big question is the client experience is not, it doesn't feel different. The forms yep. are not connected to the database
1: right now. That's the problem, Right. That would be the ideal situation, right? Jason's like, you have a database of all this client information. Oh, yeah. And then you only, you confirm with them what you already know. And then you ask them for stuff you don't know. So but that's yeah. hard. That's a hard it's problem. So, well.
2: It's super hard. So, I've, I've got a video that's half written on this right now. That's The title is something like, why is my tax accountant so old timey? And honestly, the reason is, there's basically four tax softwares that the whole US tax system runs on uh, in terms of, you know, what CPAs use none of those systems give you access to any of that data. There's There are zero integrations. Intuit's got a little bit as long as you're inside the Intuit ecosystem. But for example, I don't have a, an automated way to pull your proform attacks data into a type form. That's, it's all captive data. Those of us that are trying to push that forward, you're having to rely on like RPA, like PDF extraction of these hundred page organizers to pull out the bits of data that you want. Uh, so that's that's definitely making the problem worse.
0: And then I mean, one of the firms is using uh, TaxCaddy, which I thought was kind of interesting because TaxCaddy's argument is, it, you 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 uh, you subscribe to TaxCaddy, you as the client, and if I change firms, in theory, all that stuff I typed in will move to the new firm because it's now part of TaxCaddy. But even that, you look at that, I'm like. It's just an online website I'm putting all my data into, right? Like, I, I don't know. I feel like the the gathering of the form maybe shouldn't be the focus. It's like, how do you, I, how do you exploit sure. the condition people are in? I don't know. I, I don't have the answer to this. And that, that's,
2: yeah, for my experience, and the reason it just doesn't feel different. The reason you start going away from TurboTax is when your tax situation is, goes beyond what's reported on a government form. So... Whether you're simple or not, you need an efficient way to capture those government forms no matter what. And tax is a pretty good way of doing that. But when your situation starts getting complex, it's all the stuff beyond that. It's it's the questions and the conversations you need to have beyond just what the IRS knows about to make the most of your tax reporting. And, and
0: that's why I had to go with a firm is because I, I needed I need some advising this year. Did some situations mm-hmm. occur, I needed advising this year. So that's why I had to jump through. So it's definitely the advising part. So but you don't in your brain combine the two, right? Like it's yeah. like oh now now you have to do the firm or I'm going to do the the tax return and that's that's the difference. But so I wasn't trying to uh, attack the world, but <laughs> well, it says the timing is a little is a little poor with that. Well, <laughs> I thought it mean, was perfect I was experiencing it, it was literally on my screen. Yeah. And it, no,
1: actually, the timing is good. I'm, and and. I think that the customer experience is where we differentiate as accountants these days, right? That's what, that's the difference. Yeah. And so if our customer experience is the same as a automated tax platform, that's a problem, right? Like, well, There needs to be more humanity in there because that's what makes us different is, and, and Jason, you're all about that. Is like, let's free up time on all this administrative stuff that we waste time on. And then we can, we can actually be advisors to people, right? Like, yeah.
2: So, so the best implementation of this is when you have a tax advisor you're working with throughout the year and doing all of the planning, filing a tax return is actually more of an administrative process. It's not this ta something coming to a head. Because my clients in November, December, they already know what their tax is going to be in April. They've already paid it all in. And so, the only thing that's due April 15th is your tax payments, not even the tax return. So, at that point, filing your forms is really an administrative process. And so, and a high touch, and it's definitely high touch setup. It's kind of an afterthought, and nobody likes doing it. But the value of the relationship is more everything else that's happening around that, uh, and the productized solutions of like we're just going to file your form for you, we're gonna we're gonna pull your data out of QBO. That's kind of a productized version that's somewhere in the middle, right? It's not DIY, it's not super hands on, but hopefully that's what firms like mine are are pushing towards, not going back more the productized side.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Cinder. With direct connections to Amazon, Shopify, eBay, Stripe, Square, and 20 of the most popular online and e-commerce platforms, Cinder automatically categorizes and accurately posts transactions into the accounting system, allowing you to easily prepare your client's data and organize their consolidated P&L regardless of the number of platforms they may be selling on. Cinder allows you to use the general ledger of your choice. QuickBooks, Xero, or even Cinder's own GL, which is designed specifically for e-commerce businesses and contains everything you need out of the box to make tax season a breeze. Cinder can sync all the necessary details like inventory items, tax, shipping, discounts, classes, and locations. It even correctly handles the processor fees. With tools like a duplicate detector and rollback functions, you can rest assured your client's books will never get messed up because you can undo and restore any synced data with literally one click. If you need support from Cinder, they offer free help using your favorite means of communication, be it chat, email, or phone. To try out Cinder for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcastpromo cinder. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo/synder. So we got some listener mail. Should we get to that, David? Yeah, was, uh, a
1: little uh, feedback on uh, our uh, crypto enough. episode last uh, week. Just a little bit. Jacob Schroeder tweeted to us. He said, uh, at Blake T. Oliver, isn't USDC audited by Grant Thornton? This may be the differentiator that allows it to overtake USDT. What he's referring to there is what we talked about last episode. My concerns with Tether as the you know bank of crypto being $70 billion of actually not crypto that's not tethered in any way to the u.s dollar because tether says that they don't have to give you u.s dollars in exchange for your tether and to me that is the uh, sandy foundation for this whole house of cards potentially collapsing right 70 billion dollars wiped out could take down the crypto markets and i was really curious because i haven't looked at other stable coins and us us dc is the one that's backed by coinbase and a bunch of other like you know legit exchanges and they are audited by Grant Thornton and the reserves are backed up, which is great. Unlike Tether, which has never been audited. You know, you look at like, you, then you look at the trading volume and Tether's 10 times that of us, uh, USDC.
0: It's funny they so brought just, up Tether because I had a, I saw an article about Tether's accounting firm.
1: Oh, the, yeah, the, well, the one, the one that, uh, you know, issued, they, they're, they're, they're holding out this like report, independent accountants report, but it's like, it's meaningless, yeah, right? So, like,
0: so UK-based mid-tier firm HMA McIntyre-Hudson announced January 14th its Cayman Islands office, MHA Cayman, now handles the clients of Cayman-based, more Cayman firm Tether's accountant. That's a lot of Cayman. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, I don't know. The Cayman Islands, things are done
1: there for a reason, right? Jason, are you like uh, into crypto? Do you have like clients that do a lot of crypto? Like, are you knowledgeable about this? Can you educate us in, in any way?
2: I love this stuff. Honestly, I try not to talk about it because accountants are like, I think are really going to be the the laggards and the people that, that steer clear of it for a long time. But I think it's, honestly, I think it's fun. I think oftentimes it, the mainstream stories about it take away from the really exciting thing, which is more the blockchain. But then all you do is you, you see stories about, you know, volatility and crypto as an investment and stuff like that, which... It is a fun story, but I'm excited about the long-term possibilities.
1: So, another listener wrote in, Eric, who asked that uh, we not use his full name. This is regarding timesheets because, you know, we're not exactly, the, I'm not exactly a fan of timesheets, having done them myself in public accounting. Eric said, great follow-up on the timesheet debate. When I worked at a large firm, a new senior manager was in an absolute panic because he would religiously fill out his time every day. But at the end of the week, his billable time was incredibly low, even though he had been working long hours. We had the IT person, Trace, who was accessing the software. Not everyone had access to someone else's time. We caught a partner editing this poor guy's timesheet and moving time on his jobs to non-billable time. The partner instructed his admin to do it, and his admin, quote, gave him up, unquote. The admin had, quote, all access, unquote, for billing and making corrections in the time software. Lots of stories about that partner. He was such a jerk and no one did anything about it. Can you imagine that? It's the perfect crime
2: in an accounting firm, right? That is so inside baseball. Wow.
1: (laughs) Moving, secretly moving time from a manager from billable to non-billable. I mean, that's like the, to me, that's the timesheet equivalent of like in an office moving somebody's cubicle wall, like one inch smaller. You're going to make them drive them crazy, right?
0: David, you look like you're going to say something. No, I'm just like that. That's totally, uh, it, it's gaslighting, right? Like that's the whole yeah, yeah. story.
1: Yeah. Well, and I asked, you know, I followed up and I said, well, why was this guy doing it? And I, maybe the answer is he's just messing with this guy, but also uh, he, he wants to look better because then he as a partner doesn't have to write off those hours. So, it's just these games we play in firms. It's always incentives. What are you incentivizing, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you build the game around it. So, thank you for that story, Eric. And I think it completely also dispels this myth when, you know, I talked to Ed Mendelowitz about this and I, he's very passionate about timesheets being useful. And there's a, there's a great episode on the Earmark podcast with Ed Mendelowitz talking about timesheets and we debated. And he said, people don't lie on their timesheets. And I'm like, yes, they do. Of course they do. So, please send me your stories, dear listeners, of people lying blatantly on their timesheets. I want to dispel this notion that, you know, this profession doesn't, doesn't play games like that. All right. More listener stories, more listener feedback here. Here's one. The subject of this email, avoid Prometric remote tests. Remember we were talking, David, about Prometric now offering remote testing for the CMA exam? Oh yeah, you had to have a webcam or what have you. Yeah, you can do it at home instead of having to go to these Prometric testing centers, which is kind of amazing because... If you live in a big city, it can be easy to get to the Prometric centers. But like, if you don't, you have to like stay overnight. You have to go there. It's it's quite an experience. And anyone who's taken one of these exams, EA, CMA, CPA exams, Prometric's where you do it. So Prometric now has this do-it-at-home thing. And we were talking about it. And I'm like, how does this actually work? Well, one of our listeners has done it. Chris from Baton Rouge says... Hi, Blake. I took a securities licensing exam using the Prometric remote proctoring a couple months ago, thinking it would be more convenient than going to the testing center. It was anything but convenient and added much more stress to the situation than going to the testing center. I had to put bed sheets over the clutter in my office and move things around to make it neater for pre-exam instructions. The proctor made me practically undress in front of the camera and move the camera so they could see every square inch of the room, including behind my monitor and under the desk. I will gladly waste an extra hour of my time and go to the physical testing center for my next test. By the way, I just completed my first hour of CPE with earmark to get my last <laughs> hour of CPE required for 2021. <laughs> uh, yes. So, thank you, Chris, and thanks for trying out earmark. And uh, good warning to everyone on those,
0: those remote tests. Appreciate that. So, so I have a Bitcoin story follow up?
1: Okay, you, if let's you hear talk it about
0: that. Yeah. So, yeah. Odell Beckham Jr. Last in November, he moved. He he got cut from his team, and he moved to the LA Rams. And he decided to take seven hundred fifty thousand dollars salary in one hundred percent Bitcoin. Oh, that sounds wise. And essentially, this was at the peak. So at that time, Bitcoin was at sixty nine thousand dollars, and now it's at thirty six thousand dollars. So it's down like forty six percent.
1: So this is like Eric Adams, mayor of New York. Same idea, right? He said, "I'm going to take my first three paychecks in Bitcoin." A lot of people have been doing this, right?
0: And he's probably going to have a tax hit on this by the time it's done. And eventually, over the past two and a half months, he's been making about $35,000, right? Uh, A month, which for NFL players, it's not much money in the grand scheme of things for big Mm -hmm. stars. But he may not care because as part of this deal, it it was a promotion with Square, Square's cash app. So he got paid a million dollars from them. So he may not care. (laughs) Mm. But, so, what are the tax implications now, of what he
1: did? So, he got paid directly in, in crypto at the peak. And of course, it's dropped to like half of what it was.
0: Yeah. So, apparently, the, um, I guess it's common to require the value of the crypto assets to be declared at the moment they are received. So, if it falls from the time of purchase and the amount of receiving it and lodging the return, I, I don't know. This, this was in uh, Cointelegraph. So, he owes
1: tax- Right on the value of the crypto when he received it, right, Jason? Yeah. And yep. even if it falls in value after that, he still has to pay yep. tax on what he got.
2: Now yeah, and he a-
0: doesn't he doesn't harvest those losses until he sells it. Yeah. So, so, oh, that's brutal. So he got paid seven figures from Cash App. Now I'm wondering if Cash App paid him in Bitcoin as well, or if you get real <laughs> cash from that side of this, this whole thing? <laughs> uh, the best part of this article, I think, for our listeners is. Most of the issues arising are a lack of understanding of tax laws amongst crypto enthusiasts. The demographic is 25 to 40-year-old males, and a lot of them probably haven't invested in shares or even seen an accountant before. So this is your marketing opportunity. All these crypto enthusiasts, they really need to have an accountant at this point. And yeah. they've never done it. So, so it's a whole fertile land of people that have never experienced an accountant before. So when you send them that onboarding form, you're going to lock them right in. <laughs> oh, gosh. I
2: mean, this is the exact reason I haven't gotten into crypto tax myself is they definitely need help. I just don't know that I want to be the guy to help them.
1: Because you have to bring them on, like teach them everything because they've never done this.
2: Yeah. The first time anybody works with a, with a, in professional services, it's like, it's always a learning process for them and sticker shock and all those things, but they do need help.
1: Goodness sakes. Good on all those accountants out there advertising themselves as crypto accountants. Yep. Serving the greater good. Hey, let's talk about tax season because it's tax season, right? Jason, how is it going Do for Do we have you? to? <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather just pretend it's not happening? Yeah. <laughs> is it? Is it that bad? I guess it's my question.
2: Uh, you know, there's so much unknown, a lot of spooky things that could happen, you know, and we're still in the thick of COVID. Like my firm, it's been a revolving door of people that have going, been going through COVID this last month. So, we're kind of already off to a slow start, but definitely that new tax bill spooky virtually every version we've seen of it included changes to 2021 tax law oh boy uh, and that that gets you excited i think we all still have ptsd from last year when they changed unemployment income taxability after the fact when millions of people had already filed their returns and and then the irs said don't worry about it we'll fix them all but what that really meant was they were just going to change your unemployment taxability, not not whether that made you eligible for other credits or any other impact that has on your return so oh yeah a lot of a lot of landmines this year the third stimulus payment the advanced child tax credit reporting
1: i saw a story in accounting today about the the tax credit letters being wrong just gonna bring that up as well the child tax credit letter that i got if i moved or something changed they may not have the latest information so then that number is wrong and if I file with that number, right? Like this is this is the problem. They're so bu- they're so behind. If I file with that number and it doesn't match what they've got in their system, now we've got an exception. That return, even though filed electronically, gets pulled out to be hand processed behind millions of other returns that are in the queue to be
0: hand processed. Yep. So they've set up a website take... for you to check that with your clients. If you, oh, cool. If you don't know about, it. so there's All a right. website What's that called the website for Child Care Tax Credit. Um, you're going to want to go to that. Do I have to take a selfie? Because even if your client is really good and they kept all those letters and they bring them to you or you have them upload it through your portal, all these letters I got from the IRS, you can't use them to create the return. You have to go do due diligence and go to this other website. Not not that anybody kept those letters because the letters never said, like, please retain for your tax records. All right. And all of this assumes
2: those letters are right, right? Which the issue with the stimulus payments last year was the irs thinks you got the payment but you never actually did for any one of a number of reasons i was talking with somebody the other day there's never been more liability in doing a 1040 than there is now because somebody gets a notice from the irs it says you owe 1500 bucks cut us a check and it's because they never got the money the irs thought they got does the tax pro then run up $1,000 in professional fees
1: on a $500 tax return to try to fix that for them, uh, like it's a tough spot for sure. Yeah. The time it takes to resolve these issues, it's not worth it for anyone to have to deal with this, but we, yet we have to because if you don't, it just compounds. Yep. And what a mess. Well, it, so Jason, let me ask you a question that I asked this week to Sue Coffey and Tom Hood from the AICPA. What is the solution to all of this? I mean, the AICPA got together, and created a coalition where they wrote a letter to the IRS. The letter basically said, stop all these notices, stop all the penalty stuff until we can sort this out. And that seems to be uh, the official plan of action. But to me, that's just stopping the bleeding. It doesn't heal the wound. So, how do we get out of this mess of the IRS just not being able to catch up
2: I mean, the the stopping the bleeding in the short term is stop
1: sending out those automated notices that yeah like the in the, the liens and all that stuff right the, because they haven't processed payments that have been received so then they send out uh, a notice that you didn't pay your taxes and then they do a lien on your house you know all that yep. stuff is, is like automated right yep so you got to flip that stuff off in the short term longer term
2: i think we're all realistic that any version of modernization from the irs isn't going to be the holy grail by traditional standards but what i'd like to see the best place to make that investment is in accessibility to data and a good model for this is a lot of states now have pretty solid state websites where you can go in check payment statuses actually resolve tax issues online very quickly file amended returns stuff like that and they're all, by and large, using the same off-the-shelf systems for doing this. The states aren't developing it themselves. And what this enables is not only solving those issues in the portal, but also allowing then third-party developers to build stuff on top of that. So if the IRS has a system that enables responsible access to that data, you actually open up a whole ecosystem of you know other partners that can build meaningful things around it, rather than relying on the IRS, which is unrealistic.
1: I love this. So so if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying figure out how to open up what the IRS knows. Yep. Open up their database to outside, you know, authorized people like CPAs and software companies supporting them. And then we can go in and we can fix it. I mean, we can get the data we need to file the whatever we need to resolve these issues rather than having to have this one this like wall between us and the information.
2: Yep. I think that's the first step. And then a good analogy for, I think what you could build on top of that is, uh, I think a good analogy is Plaid and banking data. So imagine a Plaid for tax data. So Plaid serves as the developer interface between that data and the people developing useful things on top of that data. As soon as you've got an ecosystem like that, I think then you've got an entire new category of tax tools for tax resolution and, and all these different things that we don't have today. That's honestly what I get most excited about is enabling developers to start building stuff on top of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but y- you need that baseline of
1: data accessibility from the IRS first. I love that. Well, so that's great because that's an actual solution that isn't just pouring money into the IRS and it doesn't rely on just hiring more people, which is because that seems to be the solution, right? They're going to take eighty billion dollars, hire a bunch of people at the IRS. But if the technology doesn't, if the technology doesn't get improved, yep. they're never going to be able to solve the problem with people. Just like accounting firms, right? We can't solve the problem with people anymore. Yep, and it's the American way, right? We're going to privatize
2: a solution uh, for our tax system. But at this point, and the, with the level of trust we all have in the IRS, it seems like the shortest path.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. How do we? How do we write a letter? Form a coalition, write a letter, get this top of mind, you know, because I feel like, you know, the the leaders, unfortunately, like nobody's talking about that solution. I've never heard that from anyone in leadership.
0: I'd agree on on the US side for sure. But I did sit in, this was at Creepers Connect in the UK three years ago, four years ago, and they had a spokesperson for the uh, HMRC. So, that's what Her Majesty's Revenue Collections possibly something like that for the UK. Their IRS, yeah, yes. the IRS of the UK, and they they've rolled out uh making tax digital. Small businesses, every form they interact with the government has to be uh, e-filed in. There's no mailing of paper forms, and they've been they keep pushing out some of these deadlines. But I sat through that, and it felt like a tech pitch. When she was on stage, it's all APIs. You're going to make API calls to get the data out. It's kind of what Jason half described here, right? But even when a, a tax agency and the government is 100% behind that, it's a slow ball to get rolling down the hill, right? And has its own hiccups and problems. And it's not like making tax digital solved all the problems. It probably created just as many problems as it's resolving. But you're right. On the US leadership side, there has not been that public discussion at all. And you think in 2022, this would be on the AICPA's list of priorities. Like how do we make tax digital in the US? Yeah, yeah. Just an idea. right? That's what we're talking about here.
2: Oh, yeah. And we've got the exec- executive order about, you know, the modernization of of systems and stuff like that. But we'll see. I think everybody, everybody knows it's unlikely you get stuff like that from the IRS for good or bad reasons, whether it's genuinely, oh, it's too complex, you know, of a tax system to do that sort of thing around or not. I think the best first step is just making that data more accessible mm-hmm. uh, because I think then... Capitalism will will take hold and start building what you need around that data. Well,
1: and there is a start to this that has happened. It's the portal now where you can go in and, right? Isn't there like a portal where you can get power of attorney? You can do yep. that, right? So, th- they're building the at least the the framework around which that could exist.
2: There are people genuinely working on building the plaid for tax data around those portals. And so, as As more things become available through that portal, which they are starting work on this. And so you have this tax professional portal for the first time right now. It's very feature light, but, um, there are people working on this and it's, it's genuinely, as soon as that data is available, other people are going to solve these problems. And Mm so all we need from the IRS is just to make this stuff accessible.
0: Is IRS kind of like damned if they do damned if they don't. (laughs) So they try to roll out that we talked about last week, that ID me right, where you're going to provide a selfie and your driver's yep. license too. Well, now they've ex- the, the IRS has came out and said that they're actually looking for other possible providers in the future for a service like this, because it mm-hmm. turns out, um, I mean, obviously there's, n- mainstream media have jump, have, has jumped on this ID.me story, and it turns out that it's not just a one-to-one like, okay, it's, it's Blake's selfie holding up his driver's license. We verified who Blake is. And that's the end of the conversation. IDMe apparently stores this in a big database and compares your image to millions and millions of other images. And so people are like, this is a breach of privacy. And then really, the reason you build a database like that is to sell it to marketing agencies. Like, that's where the real money is in all this. The money is not in their government contracts. So now the, well, the they have opening up is- to look at other alternatives. Yeah, because it's a private
1: company they've contracted with, yep. right? So. The, the yeah, and they, weren't, they weren't quite holding
2: themselves out as what, it, you know, they're truly doing and now that's coming back on the IRS. I, I totally get it. You're hosed either way because the IRS is trying to make authentication as tight as possible without building their own thing because who's going to do that right now?
0: But, but they're trying to step in that if you can figure out who people are, you can open up the data to the person on the other end. And then yeah. they're getting slammed for, they, they took a step to try to do that and it's just backfired on them. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay Financial. For those listeners that haven't been following along with my drama caused by PNC when they purchased BBVA and botched the migration, to quickly summarize, PNC bank feeds wouldn't work with QuickBooks Online, the website had all my old BBV transactions just listed as debits and credits with no vendors or payees, and to top it all off, the June bank statement was just missing, like June never happened. Let's just say my 2021 books were a mess. So for 2022, I made the commitment to stop using PNC and switch everything to Relay. Relay is a no-fee online banking platform built for you and your small business clients. Relay understands and solves all the things we as accountants and bookkeepers care about. Security, bank feeds, automation, reconciliation. I invited both my interns to my Relay account. They created their own user ideas and passwords, and within minutes, they were using Relay to create virtual debit cards, physical debit cards, download statements, and reconciling. Now, the bank feeds in my QuickBooks Online are reliable, and my 2022 books are in order. To stop fighting with an unreliable bank that doesn't care about you or your small business clients, head over to slash relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash RELAY. Relay, business banking for your accounting tech stack.
1: So I hate to do this, but uh, since I made us talk about tax season, I'm going to make us talk about PPP. Uh oh. It's coming back, guys. Maybe this is the last hurrah because we we have a report on how did it all pan out? Where did the money go for Paycheck Protection Program, which we've been asking for years now on our show. So, here's a report from the National Bureau of Economic Research. This got some press a couple weeks ago, came out this month in January as we record. So, uh, Reminder to everyone who has blocked it from their memories, the Paycheck Protection Program provided small businesses with roughly $800 billion in uncollateralized low-interest loans during the pandemic, almost all of which will be forgiven. Jason, did you get into the PPP game? Are you, oh, are you still? Oh, did we? Yeah. 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 How many of your loans have been forgiven, would you say? Almost all of them. If they haven't at
2: this point, it's usually because there's an issue on the portal side. Got it. So you were in this, you were helping people get these PPP loans. Oh man, we were, we were so out in front of this doing webinars. We were going to be the heroes because I mean, everybody all, all at the same time, they want this money. So you can't really just hide from it. Right? Right. So were you the heroes? I think we I mean I think we navigated it as well as we could, but holy smokes was were things changing day by day. We told them, hey, we're gonna get the agent fees, so you don't have to pay us to do this work. And then the banks took all the agent fees, and it's it's a whole thing.
1: Screw the banks, man. Yeah. Screw the banks. They really hosed us on that. So here's where the money went. So according to this report, right, you what what was the impact? 93% of small businesses ultimately got one of the loans. 93% of small businesses. So it worked in that regard. Like 93% of businesses were able to access the program. The program cumulatively preserved between 2 and 3 million job years of employment over 14 months. A job year, right, is one year of a job. So, 2 to 3 million job years over 14 months. You want to know how much that cost per job year? 170000 to $257,000 per job year retained. Jeez. So, you know, that person, right, because the point of the program was to replace paychecks, paycheck protection program. So, if you had an employee, you know, let's say the typical American worker makes, I don't know what, like $50,000, $60,000, whatever the number is, it's not, it's definitely not 170000 to 257000 right? So, we paid that much to save those jobs. Only 23 to 34% of PPP dollars went directly to workers, who would otherwise have lost jobs, the balance flowed to business owners and shareholders, including creditors and suppliers of PPP receiving firms.
0: So they should have just used the, the treasury and the IRS just to deposit 50 grand in everybody's bank accounts. If you had a job when the pandemic started, we're just gonna give you 50 grand and it would have been cheaper yeah, should... for
1: us as a country overall. Well, this is the consequence of funneling it through banks and through businesses is that, think about it, when it goes through that filter,
0: how much of the money is gonna get to the workers? Now, there's We've a debate as that to- that w- startup in Phoenix made a billion dollars in revenue or 2 billion or something ridiculous. They, they, they started the startup in
1: April of 2020. And they to made- To do it, the PPP loans. Yeah. Because yeah. they got the, the percentage, yeah, the, the commission on that. So this is, I think, a good argument for- um, Now, I don't look at this as like a failure in the sense that like, okay, the the workers only got a third of the money because the program changed, evolved to support like- small businesses too, right? It was called the Paycheck Protection Program, but it was designed to keep these businesses alive. And if it kept the businesses alive and they didn't go out of business, that's protecting future job years. So I don't think they looked at that in this report. Yeah, they. I think they need to look at that. Like how many businesses would have gone under if they hadn't done PPP? And don't forget the whole premise of the PPP in the
2: beginning was use this money to pay your team to not work. Right. It wasn't to pay them to come in and work as they usually would, it was so that you could keep paying them when they had to go home because you were shut
1: down.
0: You were shuttered, yep. My takeaway
1: from this is the program was successful, it was just extremely inefficient, which is like not really saying much when it comes to the government because that's what we expect, right? (laughs) But I think, you know, this is a good reason, a good case for the digital dollar or a Fed coin. Because then it would be possible for the government to, instead of going through banks, which are extremely inefficient, and the SBA, like to just directly distribute stimulus to individuals through a cryptocurrency, a blockchain base that they control. The digital dollar would let you do this. I mean, we have cash, right? You can't just like mail everybody $10,000 in cash very easily. Also, (laughs) then you have to use the IRS for that. That was a problem. I don't know. Jason, do you have any thoughts on this concept of like a a federal coin? You know, like what they've done in China, right? With the digital yuan?
2: Yeah. I I mean, I think if there is a lesson to be taken from the PPP thing, it was a situation where it was going to be a shotgun approach and everybody knew that. And it was an eight-week program. That was how it all started. And they thought at the time that was the most efficient means they had to put money in in businesses pockets maybe uh and by extension the employees pockets but yeah i mean with the stimulus payments you know issues with those those debit cards they mailed out money going to the wrong people yeah there's definitely a strong argument that you need a more direct way to put money in people's pocket on the flip side we all know how well these one-size-fits-all solutions work? How many people in the U.S. right now actually have a crypto wallet? Uh, what does that look like? You know, the ID.me thing is a great example where, theoretically, it gets you quicker access than it did before, but there's a lot of people that just doesn't work for it. Like, we're, we're going to have elderly clients who are going to have to come into the office, you know, on somebody's smartphone or iPad or something and, and navigate them through that process. So, definitely trade-offs, but I think it is a great example of the underlying value of blockchain for all of the, you know, really negative headlines it can generate. Yeah, like it totally makes sense in that regard.
0: Plus, is going to give the, the post office something to do because <laughs> they were talking about uh, doing debit cards to the post office and for the unbanked. They can do some banking functions at the post office. But now I think the post office is going to distribute all those COVID tests. And then maybe there's some functions of the IRS they could push off onto the post office as well. Like another, like another opening the mail, like opening agency. the returns. The post office could do that <sighs> for them. And that would save the RS. Yeah. Well, you have you seen
2: the the rebrand of Radio Shack? Now it's all DeFi and cryptocurrency. Maybe this is the future of USPS, David. It's a, it's a DeFi play.
0: Yeah. Just, they don't just deliver something else instead of uh, uh, a.
1: Eventually, the yeah the US, the the postal service has like doesn't deliver any mail. Oh no! It's just like a a DAO or it's a uh,
0: uh,
1: yeah. Uh, So we kind of inched into it. Maybe we should get into app news with the time we have left. Okay. What's the big story in app news? I I don't know where to start, David. Expensify releasing its CPA card that's going to pay your AICPA dues. Or Apple is now going to let iPhones accept credit cards. So you don't have to use a square reader.
0: And that Apple story, we can talk about that. The headline was way better than the article. There's not a lot happening just yet. (laughs) The story is iPhones have NF,
1: uh, not NFT. What is it called? Near field NFC. iPhones have NFC, right? Which is what lets you tap them to a reader and then pay with Apple Pay. Apple has acquired a startup. They did it a while ago and they have now adapted this technology so that you could theoretically accept payments on your phone.
0: So you don't need a square dongle or any piece of hardware right. added on. But then if you really dig into that article, they've already been running this. This company has already been doing this technology on Samsung phones for two years. And so uh-huh. that's where I was like, oh, <laughs> this is like, like it's already available kind of in a way. Like, But at the oh, same and- time, Apple, if they do things right and they really get behind it, or if this becomes a priority for Apple, yeah, it could be very disruptive to all of us, including Square.
1: So you're saying big, it's been around and it hasn't like changed the world. So what's going ma- is it going to I make see a lot of people on it?
0: their Samsung phones with square dongles on them. Still. Still. Yeah. It's Interesting. Okay. But when I did see that kind of break that story, I was like, whoa. And then now I'm, I'm kind of like, ah, oh, it's probably not as crazy as everybody's making it out to be. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by A2X. Since 2014, A2X has helped thousands of online merchants and their advisors save inordinate amounts of time reconciling the revenue for their online stores. A2X posts tidy summaries of sales, returns, and fees from Shopify and Amazon directly into QuickBooks or Zero that exactly match the deposits that appear in the bank account, allowing you to accurately reconcile in just one click, giving you the confidence of knowing that your client's e-commerce financials are accurate. Cloud Accounting Podcast listener and e-commerce expert Scott Scharf said A to X is the gold standard in e-commerce accounting. A to X is a partner program for accountants and bookkeepers that includes one-on-one onboarding, training for you and your team, and exclusive marketing opportunities. To learn more about using A to X and get 50% off your subscription for three months by using code CAP50, head over to Podcast slash A2X. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash a the number two X.
1: So, then let's talk about Expensify because this caught my attention. They made a big announcement about the Expensify CPA card, the only smart card built specifically for accountants and includes benefits such as reimbursed CPA license and CPE credit fees, dedicated account managers, instant approvals, blah, blah, blah. But the thing that caught my attention was apparently, if you get this card from Expensify, the CPA card, you are going to get a free AICPA membership, free state by state CPA certification renewal, free CPE credit reimbursement. I mean, how much is an AICPA fee now? It's like it, it's a, it's hundreds of dollars. I, I can't remember, right, Jason?
2: I don't know. It's one of those things you pay and
1: you don't even look because it's yeah. like, oh, well, I got to pay it. Annual membership dues for the AICPA. They're going to like, oh, it's by they change it by uh, regular memberships depending on your level staff pay like 300, partners and shareholders pay like closer to 500. So like, this is kind of a crazy offer, isn't it? Like, what if everybody signs up for this and Expensify ends up paying like 700,000 people's AICPA dues? And
0: pretty much if you're CPA, you're going to get the card because they have the model similar to like Brex and Ramp and all these companies that they don't make the founders of a startup, put up their own equity or a personal yeah. guarantee on the credit card. They're kind of building that same type of a model where they're not going to do a credit check or personal guarantee. So basically, if you, you have those letters, you're a firm, we're going to give you this card and take care of all this. Now, what's interesting is you think about this. What about like these big firms? If you've got 4,000, put your right. company, you're, you're going to roll this out. And now they're going to pick up, Expensify is going to pick up the memberships at the ACPA for this. Like, State and national
1: member dues. I mean, that's like going to be like hundreds of dollars per, uh, I I think
0: this is great for firms. Probably. This is really great. It's a, it's amazing offer, but who, it just seems too good to be true. Like how is there, what is expensive? i going to get out of this is the hope that the experience expensive is going to be so great that people are going to like push all their clients on it. It's a great value though. I mean, from this perspective,
1: I mean, it's not surprising given what they've done in the past, right? Uh, super bowl commercial (laughs) invite only destination conference, this is, this is very much like an Expensify kind of like, when they do a marketing activity, they go all out and they, they'll spend whatever. But, it, but uh, this one could be, so I, so I tried to sign up for it because obviously I don't want to pay for my own member dues. This is the best part. I go on the uh, website and I chat and I say like, how do I get this thing? Apparently the only way that I could sign up was for somebody to call me and talk to me on the phone. And the card's not available yet. It's going to be available in like three weeks from as we record this. So, I'm on the wait list. I'll let you know if I get one and if it works. Is there a way for
0: you to make a bunch of money at this, Blake? Take your earmark CPE app. Uh-huh. Charge $1,000 for it now. And, tell, and you put a little ad on it that says, hey, don't worry if you buy this for $1,000. Expensify will pay for you. So you still get the earmark CPE app for free, but you get $1,000. Expensify is going to reimburse the accountant for that.
1: Like, isn't there a... Sign up, sign up for earmark and we will sign you up for the Expensify CPA card and you will get...
0: Uh, 100% <laughs> you rebate. <will> get- <laughs> is there, a,
1: is there a, like an AICPA, CPA.com tie-up in there? Well, so, here's the funny thing about this. I don't know because Expensify, are they still in the CPA.com program? Because after David Barrett wrote that right. um, letter saying that... He wrote a letter last two years ago or I don't know, during the election... Biden v. Trump. He wrote a letter to all the Expensify users saying that if you vote for Trump, it's a vote against democracy. It's worth reading. Go check that out if you if you ha- didn't get that email. But after that, Expensify disappeared from CPA.com very quietly. I don't know if this is in partnership with CPA.com. Are they still there? I'm going to go right now to cpa.com and see if Expensify's listed on is one Expensify's of their partners. I'm on the Expensify's
0: website, and I don't see them bragging or yeah. saying they're endorsed or any little logos or anything like that. I did notice when the page loading, though, that Expensify's accounts page just runs on Squarespace. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. They probably saw so, a Super Bowl ad for Squarespace and like, we're moving to there. <laughs> yeah,
1: so I don't see them listed here because cpa.com has their like, hand-picked solutions the right. ones they feature. Oh, yeah. Spensify is gone. So, are they just going to reimburse oh. people?
0: Now, there's free premium upgrades to your firm at $9 a seat.
1: Yeah. But I mean, the play here is not to make, get money from the firms. It's to get them to put all their clients on it, right? That's the yeah. idea. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's uh, like accountants are the are the golden egg because uh, they're gatekeepers to so many more potential yeah. users.
1: Yeah. But man, like 300 to $500 per user acquisition? Right. Seems exactly. like a lot. And more because they're offering, yeah, the. um But that's just the AICPA fees. They're also offering state reimbursement of your state. When well, it's every fees. single year, right? Every year for Good grief. That's why. That's why this doesn't add up to me. I mean, unless unless Expensify just makes so much money because we know they're profitable, right? Maybe they make so much money they're willing. This makes sense for them, but huh. I don't know. I'll let you know if it's real. And they've it's tied not this into yet.
0: one of the biggest defects of Expensify, or the biggest criticism, which is, you never really get a dedicated account manager, you don't get good support, and they're kind of bundling that in with this. Like, okay, fine, you want a dedicated too. support manager, you want actual accountant support, you got to get the credit card.
1: Well, we'll see if they deliver on that, because Expensify has always you know, proudly bragged that they only have 140 employees. How many people are they going to have to hire to offer accountant support?
0: And they hundreds. get a piece of, like, so. That the thing is with Visa and MasterCard and the way their APIs work, and that's where all these companies are spinning up cards, is they get a piece of that action. So they may have done the math, and a f- firms will charge enough other stuff beyond their membership dues and CP credit things that maybe they still make money on this.
1: Well, we're almost out of time, but I have one more story to take us out, if you don't mind, David.
0: I got two more we could to tie in, because they tie into your whole, like, crypto, but just these new banks and this the credit card stuff. All right, let's 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 do it quick. All right, so one is Walmart. So Walmart, long story short, they're rolling out a new bank called One Finance. So it's a neobank and they're taking that next step because their customers want a one-stop shop. The scary thing or maybe not scary thing is they have 1.6 million US employees and hundred million plus weekly shoppers. Them rolling out a bank is hugely disruptive because they already have the eyeballs there. And then the other thing that uh, happened is Intuit. So we talked about before, they rolled out two new products, but they rolled out QuickBooks Get Paid Up Front, which we loosely talked about before where you can, it's invoice refactoring. What's interesting about that is if you do the invoice refactoring and then somebody pays you through Intuit Merchant Services, Intuit's not going to double dip on the fee. They pay you through that. So basically all this is going to do, it's going to get Intuit just to get even more customers on both sides, they're just going to get more people. But then the other thing Intuit launched is they have something called QuickBooks Early Pay. And this is going to allow, um, you know, that to get paid two days early type functionality mm-hmm. that a lot of companies are offering now. And Intuit's going to be able to offer that. So then if you have a QuickBooks Payroll, you could offer that to your employees. But they launched these two products.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing how like so much of what's happening in the accounting space is solving cash flow problems with You know, we'll give you the money up front and then we're going to charge you a fee for it. It is sticky. You're not going to leave QuickBooks if you've got all your invoices factored on QuickBooks, right? Oh, yeah. Smart move in that regard. Lending, all that stuff. You know, payroll, like that's all, yeah, platform commitment. Well, that's interesting. We'll have to talk more about that on a future episode. I've got one more story to take us out, which is uh, the only thing better than a spreadsheet is a spreadsheet with Wordle in it. Oh, jeez. Zapier does great blogging, Jason. I love the Zapier blog. They do. It is really good. And this is a post from this week, this past week, by Tyler Robertson. It's, it's like a lesson in how do you create Wordle in your own spreadsheet. So, it's a great way to learn spreadsheet building skills, you know, some automation inside of Google Sheets. If you want to, like, teach yourself something, cool. Like, he, he has the screenshots, he has the formulas, everything. Can we just touch on what phenomenal marketing that is too?
2: Like, what can my tax firm right now do around Wordle? Uh, I just, I love it. Because who the hell wants to play Wordle on a spreadsheet? Nobody, right? But
1: that's not the point. We're talking about it. So going back to our discussion about the tax organizer, the big long form, I've always thought that, you know, the ideal situation from a customer experience standpoint is actually the old way we used to do things, which was I business owner, freelancer, whatever, just person, your client come into your office and I have all of my tax stuff that I've collected in a shoebox throughout the year. And we sit down together and we just go through it all together. Maybe it takes a few hours. You do the return. We talk as we do it. And by the time I leave, I'm done. Or, or, you know, maybe you take it and then we talk about it. Then you have everything you need and then I leave and then I get the return at some point, not too long from then. That's actually the ideal experience. So how do we recreate something like that where we're having a conversation and it's not just me plugging stuff into an impersonal form. How do we recreate that as accountants?
2: Yeah, so what I try to steer my client towards is I try to avoid the intake meeting. I say, send me your shoebox, give it to me in whatever format works best. I'm not gonna penalize you, that's fine. When I wanna talk to you is, if they're a once a year client, I wanna talk to you on delivery. If they're a year round client, the time I least want to talk to you is when we're filing the return because all that stuff is in stone. There's nothing you can do with it anymore. Right. So I want to talk to you outside of that period, always trying to get it back to it being an administrative process because you planned ahead and you already know where you're headed. But yes, uh, leaving space for making it personal. I think everyone's so staffing constrained and, and workflow focused that they're trying to squeeze more and more of that stuff out. And so, you've got this kind of degrading client experience. It's getting worse over time just from a position of kind of scarcity. And the only solution is really you got to help fewer clients and help the ones that are willing to pay for the fact that that's more
1: time consuming for you. And you've been out there talking about how accountants need to raise their prices. And I'm glad you're out there saying that. And you did a really good Twitter thread on the math behind it where... What is it? You raise your prices 20%. That's not a 20% increase in revenue. It's actually a. It's a way
2: bigger increase on your bottom line. And that's what matters at the end of the day is your profit. Everybody's. I'm so sick of the glorification of growth. And we're all really impressed by each other's growth, right? Well, growth is top line. And in my experience, growth is super sweaty. Growth is a lot of work. Usually it degrades quality of life. And it doesn't even mean you're making any more money. I mean, the last two years in my firm, we and, and I kind of experienced this myself. We grew a cast practice like one and a half million dollars in, in 12 months. And it was terrible. And it was awful. And it wasn't very profitable. And ever since then, in my career, I've been on this pilgrimage to do less, do less, do less. Uh, because if you pair out all the folks that won't pay top dollar for what you do, you make everybody as much money helping fewer people. In our profession right now, I worry a little bit about Those people that go away, who's going to help them? I think there's genuinely not enough people out there to help. That's getting into a whole other thing about, you know, getting away from one-to-one services and doing more one-to-many services. All professional services are one-to-one. They don't need to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm trying to get away from the whole just kind of toxic attraction to just growth. Yeah.
0: But that's the the whole doing less, being a business owner, right? I want to do less. I don't want to fill out your tax form, your your tax wizard. Right.
1: So what Jason is saying is that if you have fewer clients, you can be more personal
0: and do more. Is that right. If I if I think about and Shoebox, it didn't work out for them, but they had, it was such a great service. They had like a, for those listeners that are old enough to remember DVDs that Netflix that used to be Netflix, and you get the red envelope in the mail. Shoebox had a blue envelope, and you would just take all your receipts and just shove them in there, and you'd mail it off, and they would scan them all for you. This is before you could really take good photos of receipts with phones. They would scan them all, and they'd send you back the envelope, and all your receipts would be organized flat. They'd be stapled together. It'd be beautiful. And, but it was the experience of me as a business owner. like I don't have to do anything. I just shoved it in the envelope and mailed it. And it's kind of that same thing. It was like, that's what I think clients want. like They don't want to have to do the work, right? Because that's what I'm looking at this form: I'm like, oh, it's so much work. I am as well just do it myself. That's That's what's going through mm-hmm. my head, right? Versus... I'm on the pay, but like, I don't want to do any of it. Like just, yeah. here, here you go, right? Here's what I tell prospective clients is every firm is
2: on a different end of the spectrum of who we're best suited for yeah. and how much we cost. So, if, you, if people are willing to pay for that, it's absolutely worth doing. Where a lot of firms feel pressure is they hear from the bottom 5% of their clients that complain about the bill. And negativity bias makes it so that they're always trying to be more cost effective on everything for everyone, but they're not hearing from the 25% of people that will happily pay more. And David, maybe that's you. And so what they do is they try to make it as little work as possible for the accountant. And you know, you doing more of that work makes it less work for them, but it sounds like what you need is a more hands-on high touch firm, which is going to cost more And so, I don't know, at the end of the day, I don't know if there's a right and a wrong way to do it. There's a lot of different flavors of it. And the higher touch may be what you want.
1: Well, and maybe, David, you would be happier if you had that as an option. And if it was not what you wanted to pay, then you would happily accept the type form, but you don't have that choice.
0: Well, here's the ironic thing too, just like both firms I'm currently working with. The onboarding and me actually paying has not happened because even that is work on me. I get to like, go to a website, fill out a bunch of crap. Like even the onboarding and the accepting of the contract is more work. Can I just give you my credit card and just get off the phone? It's funny how much work is being put on the client. We
1: have a long way to go with client experience. Yeah. I think that is the great frontier of accounting and professional <laughs> services is figuring this out. We are barely scratching the surface of what we can
0: do. What's more important, Jason? because you're big on the automation, should firms focus on automation or should be focus on client experience?
2: Depends on your customer and how much they're willing to pay for it. For me, since price is king, price always dictates how much money you make. You increase your price 10%, that's 10% straight to your bottom line. That means I think we talk too much about workflow and not enough about creating an experience that people will happily pay more for. So if it's more work for me and the client's willing to pay for it, then do it because that's what increases your bottom line at the end of the day, even if it's not this perfect automated thing. And you're going to have more productized options like your pilots of the world for doing that type of return really well. So, I
1: don't think that's where you want to live. From a marketing standpoint, I would say every firm should immediately create a concierge level of service and price it at whatever crazy price you need to put out there in order to know it will not be unprofitable that it will be profitable. You you, you have a number. It could be crazy high, right? But offer it. A
2: good micro example of this is how we did our 1099 services this year through Practice Ignition. We had a concierge tier where we would call the vendors to try to get the W9s for you. Yes, And yes. it was astronomically priced. Did anyone buy it? Oh, they did. You, yeah, and, and you're always shocked at how many people are like, oh, sure, I'll pay another 800 bucks to not have to do this thing myself. Uh, and we had, you know, 20% of people opt into it and God bless the poor soul that then had to call all of these
1: people for their social security numbers and EINs. But, right. but you had higher, you had priced it enough where you could afford that person's time to do that. Your clients were happy because there's the 20% that don't want to do anything and they're willing to pay for it. Yep. And the ones who want to do it themselves, now they feel like, okay, I saved money by doing it myself. I'm not just being forced to do this by my accounting firm. Yep. People like having options. Options. All right. Jason, man, this was a great conversation. You have a community of accountants where you talk about this kind of stuff all the time. What is that? Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, it's called Realize, RLZ.io. It's about 120 firm owners like myself, a pretty tech-minded bunch, but the premise is basically... Let's create a private space where we can collaborate and figure a bunch of this stuff out together, you know, kind of shared tooling, stuff like that, rather than doing all the same
1: stuff in parallel. We will put the link to your community in the show notes so people can go Did check that out. you say it out. one
0: more time though? Because I'm, I'm having a hard time typing it in.
1: You also have a popular YouTube channel. I am subscribed. I enjoy going on my elliptical. I've got the TV in front of the elliptical right. and then I catch up on my jason.cpa yeah, That's the name of your channel, right? Jason.CPA?
2: Yeah, Yes. go to YouTube, search Jason.CPA. It's a healthy mix of accounting memes and and helpful stuff for people like us.
1: I learn about a lot of stuff that I, we talk about on the show from your channel. So, thank you. Good. Well, thanks, right. y'all. This has been a bunch of fun. Oh, it was great. So, so much fun. Uh, and David, if people want to touch base with you, I don't know why they would, but yeah, if well, they, they want to like <laughs> go.
0: Yeah, <laughs> people are either going to sell me concierge services now, I'm gonna get a <laughs> tune up. in for more hot tax takes with David. Or Leary. or if you just want to rip on me about, you know, my lack of understanding of your job, um, you can contact me on all the socials just at David Leary. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. I'll see you next
1: week, all David. Right, Thanks, Jason. Thanks.
0: Time for the classifieds. Do you dream of starting a bookkeeping business but you don't know where to start? Join the Bookkeeping Biz Workshops, a four-day live workshop series hosted by Serena Shoup, CPA. You'll learn where to start, what it takes, what tech to use, how to build a business, not a job, plus how to get comfortable on discovery calls. The workshops begin February 23rd, so register today at bkworkshops.online. That is bkworkshops.online. Hey
1: podcast listeners, it's Blake, and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud, and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.